This morning, we are thrilled to celebrate the Christian ordinance, the Christian sacrament of baptism. And whenever we have the privilege to celebrate baptism, one of the ways that we protect against this rite becoming ritualistic and meaningless is to reflect on the meaning. And so we can have a tendency as humans just to go through the motions of something. And one of the things that protects us from that is thinking about the reality represented by these rituals, by these rites. When we think about baptism, we recognize that it's a sign. It's a picture. But the interesting thing about pictures in signs is that when they're viewed from different angles and vantage points, it highlights different realities. So if you ever go to an art museum and you look at a painting, depending on the perspective that you're looking at, you might emphasize or de-emphasize certain things. So it is with baptism. And so when we read about baptism in the Bible, different texts of scripture highlight different realities that baptism portrays. So some texts might highlight the washing away of sins. Other texts might highlight our resurrection from the dead with Christ. So in that way, we can say that baptism is a symbol or is a picture is multifaceted, or if you want to get very technical, polyvalent. There are multiple truths that are represented by this picture. Now, we as a church have tried to teach comprehensively on baptism in our Bible class, The Doctrine of the Church. We've done a little write-up on baptism that's available on our website. So if you have questions about baptism, you can look there or you can talk to us. But this morning, we'll consider the text on baptism found in 1 Peter 3, where Peter highlights an angle of baptism. He emphasizes the reality of baptism from a particular perspective. So if you haven't already, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll consider verses 18 through 22. And I think that in this text, there are three basic realities about baptism that Peter presents. First, baptism is a picture of our deliverance from certain death. So in other words, baptism visually depicts our salvation and our deliverance from death. Second, baptism is a pledge of fidelity to God and our faith in Christ. And then third, baptism is an identification with and participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. So we'll consider those three realities briefly this morning. But please follow along as I read 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Peter begins this section of his letter by highlighting the significance of Christ's substitutional sacrifice for the reconciliation of mankind. Now, when we read a text like this, when there's such a poignant phrase that baptism now saves you, questions are asked, aren't they? We think, isn't that what Catholics teach, for instance? Yet Peter, the apostle Peter, communicates in his letter to the church that baptism saves. Now, Peter qualifies this, doesn't he? Immediately, not by the washing away of sins by water. So we need to ground ourselves in the reality of what Peter wrote before that sentence, which was that Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. So before Peter has this phrase of baptism saving us, he emphasizes two realities. The first is that it is the suffering of Christ for sins once for all that saves. So Christ deals with your sins and the sins of all who come to him by faith, and he does so with finality. So it is not washing with water that cleanses us from sin. Baptism doesn't deal with our sin. Christ dealt with our sin and he did it once for all. But the second reality that Peter emphasizes before he talks about baptism is that by virtue of Christ's suffering, he now has the authority and the right to bring us to God. And so we will stand before God after death in peace only because we are brought there safely by Jesus Christ. So your baptism is not what transports you in safety before the throne of God. It is the risen Christ who does this. So as a Baptist, I want to be clear. Baptism does not deal with your sin. Christ deals with your sin. I think Peter's clear about that here. And so we need to be equally clear about that here. So... Now that we have affirmed that salvation comes by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection and not by virtue of baptism, we can emphasize what baptism is and what it does. So very often Baptists are guilty of reading this text and taking so much time to explain what baptism is not that they never actually talk about what baptism is. We've probably done that. We don't want to do that. We want to focus on baptism. So in this text, What is baptism? What does it do? First, Peter teaches us that baptism is a picture of deliverance from certain death. So he draws a connection between the deliverance of Noah and his family members with the sacrament of baptism, noting that baptism corresponds to this earlier act in history where God delivered his people from certain death. So we read in verse 20, that God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, that is the ark, a few people, that is eight people, were saved through water. So baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
So what is Peter saying here? He's drawing a parallel. So very often in the Bible, we have a record in the Old Testament of an act or a figure or a word from God that is a real event in history, but God uses that real event in history to prophetically depict a reality that's going to happen. So very often we speak in terms of a type, the Old Testament picture, and the anti-type, the greater reality that's revealed in the New Testament. The Christian Standard Bible translates it in terms of baptism, which corresponds to this. And I think that's a helpful way of thinking about it. So very often there are New Covenant, New Testament realities that correspond to an Old Testament event or person or picture. And that's what's going on here. And so the parallel would run as follows. Baptism, the event in which an individual who has been reconciled to God by faith in the atoning work of Christ is submerged in water, corresponds to the flood event in which a group of individuals who had found favor in God's sight traveled through or were submerged in a sense in water in the ark. In both of these events, the final result is salvation or deliverance from certain death. In the first case, in the Old Testament case, that deliverance is from the flood waters that would have otherwise killed Noah and his family. In the second case, it is deliverance from sin and the final spiritual death that we read of those who reject Christ. Now, in the new covenant, individuals must believe in God by faith and accept Christ and the gracious atoning work of Jesus. This is reflective of the reality that Noah had to believe God and then step into the ark. And so there's a move beyond mental ascent. The flood is coming, build an ark or you will die to action. So belief takes form in action. In the new covenant, we're told that those who are without Christ will die in their sins and be forever separated from Christ. So we must repent and believe the gospel. But faith is followed by action, right? This is the contrast in James of faith that works itself out in action and works. Well, one of the actions that our faith works itself out in is stepping into the ark, stepping into the waters of baptism. In that way, we can say that baptism saves us, like Peter says, it saves us. Baptism can be pictured in a sense of the package that the Christmas gift is put into. If you give a gift that's a box with nothing in it, it's not a gift. And in that way, a baptism of an individual with no faith in Christ is just stepping into water. It's an empty box with a bow on it. It's nothing. But by faith in Christ, in union with him, baptism actually means something. And it's so closely connected with our faith that Peter can say here, baptism now saves you. To carry the analogy of the ark forward, baptism then is the act that moves us from standing outside of the ark 
two standing inside the ark with the others who stand in the ark. So Noah and his family were marked off from the world and they were marked off together. And baptism does something similar. By stepping into the waters of baptism, we say, I'm no longer part of that community outside of God's people. I'm now joining with them in the ark. I'm joining with them in the waters of baptism. And so we talk about baptism as a prerequisite for church membership. This is because baptism is that great line that we cross that steps us from identification with the world to identification with Christ. Now, in part, this can happen by sharing your testimony of faith, right? We use human language to say, I've repented and believed I'm a Christian. And that's fine insofar as it goes, But the New Testament pattern is to repent, to believe, and then to be baptized. And in this way, we can think of baptism as the grammar of faith. It's the vocabulary that God gives us to say, I'm one of God's people. I'm in the ark. I'm in Christ. Thus, baptism not only pictures our salvation from certain death, mirroring the salvation of Noah and his family, but it's also the language for declaring that we are part of God's people. As such, it stands then as a declaration of our faith in Christ and as a pledge of our fidelity to God. So baptism pictures our deliverance from death, and then it serves as a declaration of our faith in Christ and as a pledge of our fidelity to God. So Peter goes on after saying in verse 21 that baptism now saves you. He clarifies not as the removal of dirt from the body, only Christ removes sin. So washing in water does not remove sin, but it does so in this way. As the pledge of a good conscience, towards God. So what does it mean to make a pledge of a good conscience towards God? There are really two options. The first is that the act of baptism could be the result of having a good conscience towards God. So it's one who says, I have been redeemed by faith. I've been cleansed by sin. I now have a good conscience towards God and I'm entering into identification with him and his people because I have this clear conscience through baptism. So in other words, the individual has already been reconciled with God and baptism is the act that testifies to that reconciliation. The second option is that it could mean that in the act of baptism, the believing Christian pledges faithfulness to God. So so the Christian is saying, As I take the step into the baptismal waters, I'm declaring, I'm giving my life to God. I'm going to follow him the rest of my days. I think that the two go together. We can step into the waters of baptism because we have a clean conscience before God. And in doing so, we declare, my life is his. I'm following after you. You own my life. So in that way, baptism puts an external form on our faith. So so similar to Jesus Christ being the external form of the invisible God, baptism serves as the external form of the spiritual reality of our salvation 
and of our commitment to follow Christ the rest of our days. As I mentioned earlier, I think that Baptists have reacted to a Catholic understanding of baptism and have gone too far talking about baptism as if it almost doesn't mean anything at all, that it's just an optional thing that you can or cannot do. It doesn't really matter. And while we want to stridently defend that there are individuals who have come to faith and died without being baptized, that they are in heaven with Christ. And of course, we think of the thief on the cross who had no opportunity to be baptized. We want to defend that. We also want to say that God makes a big deal about baptism, that it's important enough to him that it's throughout the scripture described and so important here that Peter talks about it as part of the salvation act. Now, I think what Baptists have done, and Baptists aren't the only ones who have done this, but I think in part, Baptists have said, instead of looking at baptism as the verbal and physical expression of our faith in Christ, we're going to look to a sinner's prayer that has been prayed. And so if you grew up like me, the test of whether or not you were saved was whether or not you could recount praying a particular prayer. I think that gets it a little bit backwards and it's, it's fed on by our American individualism that says, my word is all that matters. I prayed a prayer, I'm a Christian. And again, that's good insofar as it goes, but the Bible doesn't really talk about a sinner's prayer that's prayed and that is the sign of someone being part of God's people. It always follows the trajectory of believe, repent, and be baptized, such that baptism is what we look to when we say, I'm a Christian. How do you know I'm a Christian? I've shown you in my baptism. How does everyone else know I'm a Christian? I've shown them in my baptism. And so I want us as a church to care a little bit less about a particular sinner's prayer that's prayed and a lot more about expressing our faith in baptism. Because in baptism, there's a community of faith that says, yes, from everything we can tell, you are a Christian and we're putting our stamp of approval on you and you simultaneously are declaring before all of us that you belong to God. And that carries much more weight than a prayer prayed in private as an expression of your faith and repentance. So as one theologian helpfully put it, Christian baptism will be understood as the seal of both human repentance and divine forgiveness in reference to the way of all that Jesus redemptively bore on the cross as a suffering servant. So we need to say that in the same way that our prayer of faith and repentance does not save us because prayers don't save us, only Jesus saves us. So also our stepping into the waters of baptism doesn't save us, only Christ saves us. But one of those two things gets a lot more stage time in the Bible is being an important declaration of our faith in Christ. And so if you have not been baptized Think about it. This is the public way, the external form that meets our faith. 
So baptism is a picture of our deliverance from certain death. Baptism then serves as our way to declare our faith in Christ and our fidelity to God. And then third, baptism is an identification with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an identification with and participation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Note what Peter writes here. Baptism, which corresponds to the saving act of the ark, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as a pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So without the resurrection of Christ, baptism is meaningless. But by being baptized, we visually display and spiritually participate in the resurrection of Christ. Christ is the ark. The water in the baptismal pictures the flood that would otherwise kill you. But once you have believed in Christ and stepped safely into the ark, we picture that as you go down in death and you raise in newness of life. So we're saved not only from the flood waters pictured in the baptismal, but we're saved to a resurrection as we pass through the portal of death. When we read the account of Noah in the flood, when they get off the ark, the description of everything mirrors the description of the creation of the world. There's these commands to be fruitful and multiply. There's this picture of new creation. And just as Noah and his family passed through the deathly lethal waters of the flood to emerge from the ark and abide in new creation life, so too Christians, as they are submerged in the waters of baptism, walk out of that baptismal to walk as new creatures, as part of the new creation. And ultimately, we'll taste of that new creation as we pass through the waters of physical death, brought safely to the other side by Christ, where we will be fully new in him. So it's Christ alone that will carry you through the symbolic waters of death and the very real waters of death that we'll all face to this new creation. So we read of this in that great story of the pilgrim's progress. This Christian as the pilgrim comes to that final river and he crosses and passes safely through to the other side. Well, it's Christ that brings us to the other side. And he can do this because he has suffered for sins and he has raised from the dead. So the power of baptism does not come from the water itself, nor does it come from the pastor performing the baptism. Pastors are sinful, churches fail, and it does nothing to invalidate our baptism because it's secured by a greater power, the power of the resurrection of Christ. So then Peter ends by noting that we are saved. Baptism, which saves you through the resurrection of Christ, it's meaningless without Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. So all things in the new creation are under Christ's authority. All that was in rebellion to him is now in submission to God. And by entering into the waters of baptism, that means something because of the resurrection. We declare our life is his. We are in submission to Christ alone. 
No other object demands greater affection or devotion. No ruler has higher authority and no agenda takes greater priority than following Christ our King. So as we observe this baptism this morning, what should be going through our minds? Well, to Caleb and Shalia, who Lord willing, we will baptize in a few moments here, you are about to enter into these baptismal waters as a declaration of your fidelity to God and your faith in Christ. In a way, you're putting on a jersey. You're saying you're on Jesus's team. But then beyond that, you're saying, we're going to submit to the coach. When the coach tells us to run, we're going to run. When Christ tells us what to do, we're going to do it. And then beyond that, beyond putting on a jersey and saying, that's my coach, you're also saying, this is my team. We're on the field together. We're part of the body of Christ across the globe, but then more particularly, the body of Christ here. And so reflect on your baptism in the days ahead. Remember of the grace that God has given you and of who he is uniting you to during these days. To the rest of the church, to Crystal Lake, encourage Caleb and Shalia in their baptism. This is no small or insignificant step. On one level, it can just be a little bit awkward to climb up some steps and make your way down into a big tub. But on another more real and significant level, baptism is a denying of the world in the flesh to say, I'm Christ. He has me for life. So encourage them in this. Certainly laugh if there are awkward and haphazard things that happen as they get dunked in the water. But more significantly, encourage them as they seek to follow Christ the rest of their days. For all Christians who are in this room, as Caleb and Shalia entered the waters of baptism, recall your own baptism. It's a little bit like sitting at a wedding when you've been married for so many years. You watch another couple get married and you reflect on your own wedding day. You remember your vows. Perhaps you're strengthened in resolve to your commitment to your spouse and your desire to serve and love one another. Well, as you observe this ceremony of sorts, remember your own. Remember your commitment to Christ and be revitalized in your commitment to follow after him. If you're a Christian here, that's unbaptized. If you haven't been baptized, but you have put your faith in Christ, consider taking these next steps to put on the jersey, to let the coach know that you play for him and to get on the field with your teammates. Your individual testimony of salvation is certainly a wonderful thing. That's a grace of God. But he gives you the vocabulary to say it with finality and decisiveness. And that way is baptism. Finally, if you identify as an unbeliever here, if you don't identify as a Christian, one who has repented and believed in Christ, please understand the picture that is on display here. It is that Christ died for our sins. 
He was buried and he rose on the third day and he calls all to repent of their sins, to believe the gospel and to follow after him. Even as we've heard Joshua preaching from Mark these last few weeks, the fall to follow Christ is a call to come and die, to die to ourselves, to our sin, to the world, but then to find new and everlasting life in Christ. Life that begins now in the present as we put to death the deeds of the flesh and that will be realized ultimately and finally when we see Christ face to face. Baptism alone does not do anything for you, but it testifies to a great reality. And it's the box, the bow on the top of that gift of grace that is our faith and repentance in him. So as you observe this, See Christ buried, dead, risen again. In a moment, we'll hear Caleb and Shalia testify of this work in their life. But as we do, let me pray for us that we would be encouraged by the message of the gospel, that we would reflect on our own commitment to Christ and that we will walk together as his people. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful that you help us who are just earthly creatures who put so much stock in the things that we can see with our physical eyes. You have given us baptism as a way for our physical eyes to see what our eyes of faith so often fail to see. Help us to rejoice and to recognize and to participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. Help us as a church to wear the jersey well to submit to Christ our coach and to play together as we push forward to fulfill that great commission work of reaching the lost with the gospel, of teaching those who come to faith of your ways and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would grow this church through that gospel proclaiming work and we would see many in the days ahead come to know you and testify of their newfound life and faith in you through baptism. In Christ we pray, amen.